Welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, he is the man who played no one in the 2010 film Hardbreakers, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? Uh, now, now, listen, I remember being on the set that day. So I know I played somebody, and I also ate snacks. I remember that was a very kind of low-budget film, even though I did get to meet uh, Tia Carrera. I believe that's her name, right? The Bond girl? Oh, yes. my God, is she beautiful. But you can always tell when you're on a set where they don't have a big budget because they serve you lots of pasta. Lots of pasta <laughs> at the dinner table. Yeah. I don't think she was a Bond girl. But she wasn't? Oh, she, she could have been. She was the oh. femme fatale in True Lies. So. Oh, yeah, she's gorgeous. Yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. yeah. Uh, well, anyway, according to IMDb, you are listed as – there's no name <laughs> next to your name in, in You know, IMDb. I'm going to have to look into this. This is, this is highly offensive, but, um, you know, uh, I believe Robert Brinkman was the man who uh, got me involved in this shoot. He was uh, the DP on that movie, and I am going to ask Brinkman as to what I actually played in that movie because I know I had lines. Uh, Robert, Robert Brinkman, of course, the director of Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, the film that inspired the podcast, yes? That is correct. Absolutely. Well, Heartbreakers uh, is out, I think, on DVD. <laughs> it's a film written and directed by Leah Sturgis uh, and currently has 2.3 stars out of 10 on IMDb. So certainly, I that's, think that's, that's like one of your best-reviewed works. Right, that, that could be, that, <laughs> that's right up there with Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Hyde. I kid, I kid. Well, Stephen... <laughs> Uh, we have a couple of announcements today that I'm sure people are interested to hear about, especially uh, do, you know, with our long absence. But the first announcement, and, and I would argue the most important announcement, is that we have to say congratulations to you, Stephen, because you are now a published author. Not necessarily published in the traditional sense of the term, in the sense that there's no physical book out there yet, but... Uh, you are now an author that is available in Amazon's Kindle store. Isn't that correct, sir? That is absolutely correct. That is, And it was thrilling. And I got to tell you, it might as well have been published on paper because it was hard work. It was hard work. <laughs> well, Amazon has released this new line of works called Kindle Singles. And the tagline for this line of works is, uh, compelling ideas expressed at their natural length. It's basically these articles, uh, short stories, and, and pieces of reportage that are longer than a magazine article, but shorter than a book, and they're also priced accordingly. So whereas a normal ebook would cost uh, $10, Stephen Tobolowsky's Kindle Single cost $2. And this is a hilarious uh, sort of sequence of stories that you've written. It's called Cautionary Tales. You want to just tell people a little bit about it? A, a little bit. I, I thought that the Kindle would be a good opportunity to tell stories that didn't really fit into the uh, – what do you call the overview of the Tobolowsky files? Right. So, so this is a kind of story, uh, a philosophical tale of why we do the things we do based on a few real stories from my life that revolve around sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, but, 
<laughs> they are they are uh, humiliating tales, but I believe they are somewhat amusing. At least they are to me. Yes, well, they are. Uh, I find them quite hilarious and profound, as I do with the Tobolowsky files. And uh, let me just say, if you're listening to this right now, yes, you sitting there at your computer or in your car. Uh, or wherever on your iPod taking a run, and you're listening to this right now, uh, we need your help. We need your support uh, for the Tobolowsky Files and to uh, help Stephen continue getting his stories out into the world. Uh, so in order to do that, what you can do is buy this Kindle single. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Dave Chen, I don't even have a Kindle. To which I say two things. Number one, you have some nerve, mister. And number two... Uh, it doesn't matter. You don't need a Kindle to buy Stephen Tobolowsky's Kindle single. Uh, you can use the Kindle app on your iPhone, your iPad, your BlackBerry, your Windows Phone 7 phone, or your Mac or PC. So uh, there are a variety well, wait a of minute, ways. David. Yes. David. Yes. But but I'm one of the people who want to object, and I said, well, how much is that Kindle app going to cost me? It's completely free, sir. Completely oh, free. The low low price of free. Uh, so even if you don't have a Kindle, you can still buy this single and support the Tobolowsky files. And uh, I do want to say, even if you can't read it, you should buy it anyway and support the, the Tobolowsky files. If you have enjoyed this podcast and would like uh, to continue consuming Stephen's stories, whether in podcast form or uh, in Kindle form or in whatever form possible, uh, go and buy this uh, this Kindle single. Help support the Tobolowsky files. We would greatly 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 appreciate it but steven how can yes, people find this kindle single if only there was an easy url to type into their address bars to get to it i, I think i would say just go to steven oh but steven i have no idea how to spell that after you've explained it 45 times I think it would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-B, as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling, dot com. Yes. Stephen Tobolowsky dot com. All small letters. I think it goes right to that Kindle single. That is correct. So just go to Stephen dot com. Make sure you put the Y at the end there and you can get to the Kindle single and buy Stephen's newest story, which is exclusive to this format. It's not going to be on the podcast, and I, th I certainly think it's worth checking out. So that's the big announcement, and uh, we really appreciate your support, guys. Second announcement, welcome to all of our new listeners that we got from Mark Marin's show. Uh, Stephen, you recently did an interview on the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, isn't that correct? That is correct. It was a great, great time with Mark. Yeah, he is uh, a great interviewer, very savvy, and also uh, someone who I listen to frequently on my uh, podcast uh, sort of rotation. So uh, it's certainly an interview worth listening to, although I would argue that uh, if you are a regular listener to the Tobolowsky Files, then uh, you already have gotten the best of Stephen. Uh, and if you're a new listener... Uh, you should go back and listen to our entire back catalog of episodes because uh, many of the st stories that Stephen told on that interview, he expounds upon and expands upon uh, to, at length in older episodes of the Tobolowsky Files. So uh, a big thanks to Mark Marin for uh, having Stephen on the show. And uh, thank you guys, if you're listening to this right now from Mark Marin's show, for tuning in to the Tobolowsky Files. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Finally, one last thing I just wanted to point out. A, a lot of people were probably baffled at the fact that uh, we took a six-week hiatus just completely out of nowhere. <laughs> and uh, between episode 43, The Stranger, and episode 44, The Voice from the Other Room. 
And uh, the reason for that is simply a technological one. Uh, we wanted to make sure that all the episodes of the Tobolowsky Files were available on iTunes. And f- we figured out a fix for that, but it took a while to implement. So that's why the big break, and that's why no mention of the break during the last episode. Uh, simply because we had this episode in the can already. We had it completely mixed and done. But uh, we wanted to make sure that people were able to access every episode of the Tobolowsky Files. So at this point, if you search on Tobolowsky Files on iTunes, uh, you should be able to find every single episode from 2 through 44. And people might ask, well, what's, where's episode 1? Just, let's just say that one is non-canonical. <laughs> But uh, episodes 2 through 44 are now available in their entirety. And actually, I guess if you're listening to this, episodes 2 through 45. So uh, sorry for the delay. And uh, we're going to try to put these out once every two to three weeks from this point on. But uh, yeah, we're we're doing the best we can. In the meantime, if you have a hankering for Stephen's stories, again, go to stephentobolaski.com. Check out that Kindle single. So anyway... That's uh, the announcements for this week. I know people usually aren't used to hearing me talk for this long, but uh, I appreciate your patience. <laughs> Stephen Tobolowsky, today I-, I have to ask you a question because I yeah. you know, you know, learned something interesting this week, at least for the purposes of this dialogue, uh, and that is that in addition to being an actor and a writer and a raconteur, you are a teacher as well. Isn't that true? That's that's true. Uh, for about the last five years, I've been teaching improv. In fact, uh, and comedy. I have a lot of people, in fact, who listen to the Tobolowsky Files who are in town who come and take the class. But um, also recently, uh, for some reason, <laughs> I've ended up branching out and being kind of a guest teacher at different theater groups or different acting classes when the real teacher uh, goes away for a vacation to the Bahamas. They asked me to come in and teach the class for that week. And uh, I wanted to mention, because it really kind of goes into the story I was telling, uh, wanted to tell you today, is that at one of these sessions, when I was a guest teacher recently, one of these acting classes, a student asked me a question that had me absolutely stumped. And I was embarrassed because it was a really simple question. They asked, what is the hardest thing about acting? And it was one of those times that like 15 things started to come out of my mouth at once. At first, I thought about some of the difficulties I've chronicled in the Tobolowsky files about finding an agent or an agent that's good or an agent that's not in jail, uh, getting a job. I thought about never knowing your schedule from day to day, about not having any financial security, about having to travel far away from home when your wife is eight months pregnant. Yeah. And all those things are awful, and they're true, and there are many, 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 many more. But what came out of my mouth surprised me. I said, I couldn't think of another profession that is so completely different than what you trained for in college. It's like studying to be a meteorologist, and when you finally get a job and get to the weather station, they tell you, no, 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 they don't really need you to figure out the dew point or the wind direction, but they do expect you to ride a mechanical bull on the cowpoke level. In college, you study a lot of dramatic literature, which is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. The excitement of reading and understanding Shakespeare or Chekhov for the first time is akin to finding that magic flame on top of the holy mountain. It's a worthy use of your time. The young actor spends his or her time auditioning and performing in obscure classical plays like Euripides' Electra, Congreve's Way of the World. In class, they work on scenes from Ibsen, 
Tennessee Williams and study Stanislavski's books on the traditions of the Moscow Art Theater in the late 19th century. Flash forward. I recently shot an episode of Californication, a delightful, edgy comedy about show business. In the script, I play a producer trying to get a billionaire to bankroll a movie written by novelist Hank Moody, the part played by David Duchovny. The rehearsal was hilarious, with Fisher Stevens as the flamboyant billionaire with all the bucks in the world but the emotional maturity of a naughty 15-year-old. And he gives this big comic speech about how much he likes the saucy dialogue in Hank's script. So far, so good. Then our director says, guys, before we show it to the crew, let's bring in the monkey. Pause. Apparently, to make Fisher's character more eccentric, the writers gave him a pet monkey. Now, all of our eyes widened as three animal trainers came onto the set and gave us some ground rules. They said once they brought Stacy onto the set, it's best if we sat still, no talking, no extraneous movement. Then they turned to Fisher and said, we're going to put Stacy in your lap. She's great and loves people, but don't make eye contact. Don't make any sudden moves. The glow in Fisher's eyes started to dim. He said, is this monkey going to rip my face off? The trainer laughed and said, no, 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 no. Stacy loves people, but don't worry. If she gets cranky, we're going to swap her out for one of the other two monkeys. Fisher swallowed and nodded and said, can I pet her? The trainer got a very serious look on his face and qualified the question and said, yeah, you can. But if you do, you have to make sure you pet her just on the very back of her neck, because if you pet her whole body or her back, she's just going to try to dig a hole in your pants and go to sleep. It's going to be impossible to get her to do any of the tricks she has to do. They brought the monkey in. And we started the rehearsal once again. Fisher began his speech, but now he had a monkey crawling all over him, eventually standing on his shoulders, trying to pick lice off of his head. After about 30 minutes of coaxing the monkey with Fruit Loops and apple juice, Stacy got into her repertoire of tricks that included giving us the finger and drinking a beer. Yeah, we didn't want to waste that gold, so we began shooting. It took hours. It became clear that after we started the painstaking filming, that Fisher's job was no longer to be an actor delivering a funny, extravagant, over-the-top performance, but delivering a funny, extravagant, over-the-top performance with a monkey on his head, without making any sudden movements, without making inadvertent eye contact, or without getting his face ripped off. This was about as far away from Ibsen as you can get. It was something that you don't learn in school. Later in the shoot, I had to do a sex scene. Well, actually, to be more precise, it was a simulated sex scene. This is something else they don't teach you how to do in school. Now, I'm not an actor who's done many romantic scenes. Interviewers who are not familiar with film acting or my resume have asked me, is it difficult to do sex scenes with the whole crew watching? Well, the answer is, of course not, because nobody's really doing anything at all. But it can be embarrassing, but not for the reasons of what you're pretending to do in front of the camera. When I had to do a simulated sex scene in a bathtub in an episode of Deadwood, they told me they would give me a pair of light-colored swim trunks to wear in the tub to make it appear like I was naked. I went to my trailer and found a pair of yellow Speedos. There were at least two sizes too small, making me look like a tube of Indonesian hot paste that had been squeezed from the middle. 
that was far more embarrassing than shooting the scene. When I had to kiss Amy Irving in the wonderful Brazilian comedy Bossa Nova, she insisted on spraying my mouth with breath freshener after every take. I became very insecure. I understand that everybody has a different tolerance of other people's smells. I must be fairly forgiving. For example, I remember when I was 15 and my first girlfriend started kissing me in the backseat of a car just after she had eaten a chili dog with onions. Didn't bother me at all. In my mind, it was just an opportunity for good loving and good eating at the same time. I thought it was efficient, not offensive. Ordinarily, when a script has me kissing someone, it is for the purpose of comedy and not for romance. But in the scene from Californication, Pam Adlon and I fall in love. And it was up to me, by the sheer force of acting, to make the appropriate faces to indicate that we were in the throes of passion. But what faces to make. I kept trying to reach back to my Stanislavski sense memory exercises in college, but all I could remember was sitting on a chair on stage pretending to pet an invisible cat. And then there was another class where we pretended to walk through peanut butter. Neither of those helped me. So I had to come up with something else that would work before they were ready to start shooting, which would be in about 20 minutes, tops. I figured I had three options. Option one, Pretend I was Richard Gere. Richard Gere has spent decades doing love scenes just like this one, and I've seen some of those movies, and I imagine he wouldn't still be getting hired if he wasn't making the right faces, so I could pretend to be him, without hair. Option two, I could pretend I was in a science fiction film. I did one season of Heroes, and in the final show, I had the top of my head cut off with sort of a laser beam by the villain Silar. When I watched that episode on television, I realized my facial expressions reminded me a little bit of someone having sex. So while we were shooting, the director kept yelling instructions at me. He's lasering your head. It's burning. It's burning. So I gritted my teeth. And he yelled, it's burning a lot. You're bleeding. And I gritted my teeth more. And I grunted. I went, ah, ah, ah. And then he yelled out, and now you're dead. And I fell over on my desk. Now, the only real difference between that and having sex was that afterwards I didn't reach for the TV changer. I just lay there dead. In the end, I turned down both of those options in favor of one that really seemed to work. Option three, I pretended someone else was clipping my toenails. Now, you could try this at home, in the car, wherever you are. First, imagine someone is taking off your shoe and then your sock. Hmm, you think. Oh, that's nice. And then you go... Ooh, yeah. As you feel the cool air between your toes, you think, this is really nice. Then there's the moment of surprise when your partner reveals that they're holding toenail clippers. You nod and get a somewhat serious look on your face and mentally say, yes. And then there's a moment of anticipation as she gets close to your big toe. You can't believe what's happening. You smile, but then you're wary at the same time. And then she starts clipping. You are in complete concentration. Occasionally, she cuts a little too close to the quick, "Ah, oh, ooh. It's very realistic. As I say, try this technique at home next time you need to simulate sex. Once again, I had to fill in the gaps of something they never taught me at school. In 2008, when I was recovering from a broken neck, I hadn't worked in months. I used up all my savings, and I was feeling desperate. 
I called my agent and manager and said, do whatever you can do to get me a job. I just need to work. They came up with nothing. This was humiliating, but I sent out emails to all of the people I knew, director, friends, everyone, to say if they could help me, and only one came to my aid, Rob Hedden. Now, Rob and I had done two movies before and had almost done two others that didn't work out because of scheduling. An actor always has a good time in a Rob Hedden movie. He's always kind and courteous, and the unexpected is standard fare. He told me he had a part I could play. The part didn't have any lines, but I'd have two scenes with Kathy Bates. Not bad. Now, Kathy and I went to SMU together, and she was as great back then as she is today. And since college, I've been fortunate enough to do four movies with her, and it's always a laugh fest to sit on the set and swap stories about Hob and Jack Clay and all of our friends, people we knew, and the various disasters we had lived through. Rob sent me the script in the mail with a note. The little post-it had the page number where my part made its first appearance, and it also had a message, Don't get angry with me. We'll make it fun. I looked up my part and froze. I had reached a new low. My character was only referred to as butt-crack plumber. As many of you know, I have a running theory that measures the quality of the part by the name given to it in the script. Two names is good, like Don Corleone or Richard Kimball. One name and a profession is all right, like Detective Morgan or Jabba the Hutt. That means you're going to have a small role, but you'll deliver some sort of plot information. No name is bad, like cop or government man. It means you'll have one or two lines at most before you're killed. And no name with a number is worse. Cop 2, Homeless Man 3. I previously thought the worst name I ever almost had was Masochistic Gay Man. This was a role I auditioned for that didn't actually exist yet. But now I had broken into a new subterranean category. No name and a body part. When you work on Chekhov in college, you never imagine that you're preparing to one day play butt-crack plumber. Butt-crack plumber opposite a multiple Academy Award winner. I called up Rob and asked if we could at least change my character's name to just plain plumber. I was willing to compromise. I'd played the part, principles don't mean much if you can't make your house payments. Rob told me he didn't mean to insult me, but I went further and I explained to him my thesis where there's usually a direct correlation with the characters that didn't have names and the amount of time the writer thought about the part. Rob paused and said that was absolutely true. He had just added the part and hadn't thought about it at all, maybe 30 seconds. He said he envisioned the butt crack, that made him laugh, and that was it. I hate it when I'm right. I went to my costume fitting, and the designer looked at me very intensely and said, So, you're our butt-crack plumber. I said, no, 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 no. That was changed. Now I'm just the plumber. I'm Dave. I'm Dave the plumber. The designer looked at me with a certain bemusement and said, whatever. He looked me over and sighed, well, you don't have much booty. It could be hard to find a pair of jeans for you to hang out of. Let's get started. In my entire career, I've never had a costume fitting where I spent most of my time on my hands and knees. The costumer would mumble to his assistant, Well, we're getting some crack, but not enough to be funny. It's such a fine line between a tasteless joke and just plain tasteless. I think they need to come down further. Stephen, Stephen, could you pull your jeans down a little more? Thank you. I obeyed and remained on all fours. 
The costumer murmured to his assistant, Maybe we need to alter the jeans, have him tight at the bottom of his buns, like a push-up bra, squeeze him out the top. Are you comfortable down there, Stephen? I can get you a pillow for your knees. I answered, not necessary, I'm an actor. You want to know what I learned in college? The designer and his assistant stopped and said, No, what? I said, not this. I learned Shakespeare. I studied Winter's Tale and Hamlet. Do you want to hear some Hamlet? The designer said, sure. So on my hands and knees, with my jeans adjusted for maximum crack, I moaned, Oh, that this too-too solid flesh would melt, thaw, resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed its cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, that it should come to this. The designer nodded sympathetically and said, Lovely, but the crack stays. It's funny. The next week, I arrived at the set. Rob greeted me looking like the cat that ate the canary. He asked me if I'd seen my costume. I said, not yet. He said that he had a surprise for me. He ran back to the clothes rack, came back with my plumber shirt, and held it up proudly. Rob had the name Dave embroidered onto my front pocket. He said, now you have a name. The unexpected gesture is something else you don't learn in school. That's why I love being in Rob Hedden movies. We were going to rehearse my entrance, where I go in the house, crawl under the sink, and display my caboose. Rob said to Kathy, why don't you guys just make up a scene on the porch so it looks like Tobo has a part? We could shoot the scene several times and make up different dialogue every time. My favorite take when something like this. Kathy opened the door and eyed me lasciviously and said, thank God you're here. I need a plumber. Smells like something died in my kitchen. I eyed Kathy lasciviously and replied, Yes, ma'am. I'm here to check it out. I'm a professional. Kathy seductively leads me into the house saying, Right this way, Dave. I followed saying, I'm not Dave. I'm just wearing his shirt. In our final scene, Rob wanted Kathy and I to be in bed together after a session of what I suppose was torrid simulated sex. He was nervous, and he asked what we were comfortable doing. I looked at Kathy and said, Do you want to make this realistic? Rob interjected quickly, Within the bounds of taste, within the bounds of taste. Kathy and I started giggling and said, Let's do it. We lay back down in the bed in a state of undress under the covers. I picked up the TV remote Kathy picked up a bag of chips, and we started changing channels and snacking. Rob loved it. He said the scene was actually very romantic. Truthfully, over the years, I've learned that sex is fine, but there's almost nothing more intimate than a shared snack. I'm pretty sure Ibsen would have agreed. I now know that doing classroom scenes from Oedipus Rex and Othello may not be the best preparation for acting with a monkey. But there is a second problem in actor training that compounds the first. Acting classes are almost always taught by actors. More specifically, unemployed actors. 
Often the only credentials the actors teaching the acting classes have is that they've taken the very classes that they're now teaching. When you're studying to be a brain surgeon, you usually get taught by somebody with real-world experience. Not so in acting. But then again, acting isn't brain surgery. I don't mean to make the case that you have to be a working actor to be an effective teacher. You, you could be a star with your own show and not have a clue on how to teach others. Working professionally only gives you the unique opportunity to peek behind the curtain to see the way things really work. Good teaching can't create talent. All it can create are priorities. Priorities are vitally important. They protect and create the channels for talent to find expression. What I found interesting is that some of the same principles in science, religion, and other art forms can inform priorities in acting. Here's an example. In 1993, I was able to attend a master class in Beethoven's piano sonatas at Carnegie Hall taught by the great pianist Alfred Brindell and Professor William Kinderman. During that class, Mr. Brindell gave tips for playing Beethoven, and I'd like to share a few with you not just for their value if you happen to be playing Moonlight Sonata now, but in seeing how easily they could apply to other art forms, even if you are an actor on a television show working with a monkey. Brindell said each sonata tells its own story, and the pianist must understand that story before he begins. He said in playing Beethoven, the pianist is always a character actor, and that unique character must be present from the very first note. Brindell said when looking at a work, don't simplify. Don't jump to easy answers or stereotypes. If you have a hard time pinning down what the piece is, try to find out what it isn't. In other words, get a sense of the boundaries. Once you have a sense of the limits you're working in, then list all of the opposites you could find. Find out where the piece is dark, where it's light, where there's action, where there's reflection, where there's joy, where there's sorrow, etc., etc. Brindell went further to say, avoid generalized thinking, be specific. He said, if you know the story you're telling, you can avoid being too obvious in your emotions, and above all, don't forget humor. Humor is a great weapon in countering bloated emotionality. One bit of advice I personally love that's often overlooked in acting, is that one should understand the value of silence. Brindell said silence is the underlying quality of all great music. The rests in a piece are like oxygen. And know the difference in your rests. Sometimes a rest is a pause in an ongoing idea, and sometimes it's a complete stop. Now, I found this particularly interesting because in college, when I was studying Chekhov in his plays, he wrote moments where his characters are to pause and other moments where there's to be a silence. And I never understood the difference between the two until I got that tip from Brindell. Unfortunately, all good teaching is only potential energy and is meaningless unless it can become kinetic and be put into action. And as brilliant as all of Alfred Brindell's tips were for working on Beethoven's piano sonatas, I had difficulty using these tips in my role as Sal DiMarco performing with the St. Bernard in Beethoven's Big Break in the year 2007. In fact, I did just about the opposite of everything Brindell suggested. I could blame the fact that I was working with a big dog, but that would be taking the easy way out. 
I approached the role with a complete lack of clarity. I never understood what I was doing. I never took the time to find the joy, find the sorrow, the light, the dark. I basically approached the role in a stereotypic way saying, I am the villain in a dog movie. And it was worse than that. I took a negative attitude toward my character, which you're never supposed to do. I never allowed Sal DeMarco to live and breathe as a real person. My mind was in the wrong place. Rather than bring Sal's first moments on film to life, I was only concerned if this performance would finally end my career. I knew going into the picture that I would be wiped off the screen by the performance of Beethoven. That was a given. But I was blindsided by the fact that the movie also had Beethoven's puppies in it. Had I bothered to read the entire script, I would have understood that none of us human actors had a chance. Not even Beethoven could stand up to the star power of the puppies. I was jealous before we even started. One of the most shameful aspects of my work on Beethoven's sixth, as it's called in the trades, was that I was an active participant in an ongoing conspiracy. I'm referring to the ongoing fiction that dogs are some kind of furry geniuses. This scam started in 1938 with a short story in the Saturday Evening Post about a collie named Lassie. Lassie got a film deal in 1940 and ripped our hearts out in the classic Lassie Come Home. The movie was an amazing success at the box office, which led to a natural sequel, Son of Lassie. It was here the lie began. Few people know that the son of Lassie was actually played by the same dog that played Lassie, a dog whose real name was Pal. Once Hollywood got the idea that the viewing audience couldn't tell one dog from another, the conspiracy began in earnest. The success of the second Lassie movie led to a series of films that can only be described as dog propaganda, including Courage of Lassie, Challenge of Lassie, and The Magic of Lassie. And a legend was born. Like most conspiracies, the bottom line was cash. For some reason, there was big money in perpetuating the idea that dogs are not only smarter than people, but they were even good judges of character. Beethoven the St. Bernard was just riding on the coattails of many dogs before him. When I arrived at the set at Universal Studios in Orlando, I met Mike Elliott, our director. He greeted me enthusiastically and said, you have great timing. Now see, I thought he was referring to a scene in Groundhog's Day, and I was about to thank him when he continued, he's ready to do a scene. I said, who? Mike said, who? Beethoven. We're ready to shoot. He's left his trailer. And listen, when Beethoven leaves his trailer, we go into action mode because we only want to do his scenes once. He gets bored or sleepy. He's very temperamental. You'll see. The stage door opened. Beethoven was brought in by his trainer. The entire set went into a reverential silence. It was as if Robert De Niro was preparing to shoot. Mike was right. I felt the charisma. He was beautiful. He was gigantic. His fur glistened. It was like looking at a dog version of the Grand Canyon. I uttered an involuntary, wow. Mike nodded and whispered, yeah, that star power, Stephen. With that dog, we're almost guaranteed to sell 8 million DVDs the first week. He's bigger than Madonna. And he was. He weighed over 200 pounds. He stood taller than me when he was up on his back legs. In this scene, Beethoven had to jump onto a dining room table, 
run down it from end to end, knocking food everywhere. Now, this is not as easy as it looks in a movie because a dog's natural inclination is to sit under the table and beg. The plates were rigged with invisible wires to be controlled by special effects people to fly whenever Beethoven ran, creating the effect of mayhem. I realized that the essence of this scene was what Brindell was hinting at. Beethoven had to do what was not the easy choice for him. He was not naturally inclined to run down a table covered with flying plates. He was far more interested in standing still or sleeping or eating chunks of steak from his trainer. But he went for the difficult choice. Beethoven nailed the scene in one take. He ran straight down the table, was never distracted by the people or the flying food. It was amazing when you recognize that dogs are the animal kingdom's version of ADD. Mike asked me if I wanted to meet him. I said, absolutely. I went over and asked the trainer if I could pet Beethoven. He told me he would rather I didn't. The dog was on the clock. I told the trainer Beethoven was great in the scene, and this is when I began to learn the depth of deception we were perpetrating on the public. To begin with, Beethoven was not Beethoven. There were actually three Beethovens. They worked together like a Mission Impossible team to create the impression of being one dog. This one's real name was Buddy, and his specialty was running straight. There was another St. Bernard that was somewhat smaller that was good at riding in cars and jumping on people, and there was a third one that was good at growling and barking on cue. The whole thing was a hoax. Now, I don't want to say anything bad about Buddy. I couldn't have done what he did. But he wasn't just step-on-the-set brilliant. It took him weeks to learn to run down that dining room table. This is what they did. The trainer proudly explained to me that first, Buddy had to be taught to run in a straight line on the ground, on cue. Then they had to teach him to jump up on the table, run in a straight line, on cue. Then they added chairs and empty plates. Then they made the empty plates fly when he ran in a straight line. Then they added food to the plates, dummies in the chairs, and finally they replaced the dummies with extras. It took a team of five dog handlers and weeks of work, not to mention hundreds of pounds of steak as a motivator, to create the illusion that Beethoven ruined dinner. As Brindell said, one of the first things you have to do on any piece is find your boundaries. The main boundary of working on a Beethoven movie was the price of filet mignon. I understand going into this project that I had to be willing to play a character that was so stupid I was outwitted by dogs. And I agreed to do it. I knew that in my final scene, the dogs tied me up in a leash and dragged me unconscious to be delivered to the police. I accepted that too. What hurt was when Beethoven had a much bigger trailer than I did. The producers told me they needed the large one so they could give space to the three huge dog beds along with the kitchen and the refrigerator to store all the steak that the dogs were eating. It was a typical case of show business envy on my part. I know it was not worthy of me or of my upbringing. It was like when I was in high school and the captain of the football team always got the lead in the play and the girl, and I had to accept reality. Beethoven's were not just the lead of the picture. They were the franchise. The only small comfort I took was they went home in the back of a pickup truck in a cage. At the premiere of Beethoven's Six. I got a few meager laughs on my entrance from the adults in the audience, but that all faded away as the Beethovens came onto the screen. 
The children oohed and aahed at every sloppy moment of dog drool. They laughed hysterically as the dogs and the lizard outsmarted, presumably college-educated humans. And when the St. Bernard puppies appeared on the street, the audience erupted in a giant doggasm. You couldn't hear the dialogue from all of the screaming. It was like the Beatles arriving in America. My performance was left in the dust, as it should have been. Years later, I was standing in line at a movie, and a young family with a little girl recognized me and said, You were the bad man who tried to hurt Beethoven. I admitted it was, in fact, me. The father said it was nice to meet me. He wondered if I ever got to meet the Beethoven puppies. For a moment, I felt like I was a part of the tapestry of Hollywood and had played golf with Marlon Brando. I told him, yes, I did, in fact, meet those puppies. The little girl asked where they were now. I said I wasn't sure, probably in a large trailer somewhere eating steak. The father looked at me with what I recognized was some kind of envy I had had in my heart at one time. The little girl asked me if I got to pet the puppies. I told her no. They were on the clock. The family walked away somewhat content that my life was not that much better than theirs. Last year, I was asked to speak to drama students at SMU during conference hour. I asked them how many of them were working on Shakespeare. They all raised their hands. I nodded and said, good, good. And then I asked, how many of you have ever worked with a pork chop in your pocket? They looked at each other in silence. I told them, you will have to act with a pork chop in your pocket if you ever work with a dog. I asked, how many of you have ever done Strindberg with peanut butter smeared on your ears? Again, confused silence. I said, you will need to learn how to act with peanut butter in your ears if you ever work with rats. I stared out at the sea of absolute incomprehension, and I said, it's true. Again, there was a gulf. In college, they teach you about greatness. You study the masterworks that have endured. When you are really a professional actor, you're a part of popular culture. And you quickly realize that your world is no longer about appreciating greatness that will stand the test of time. It's all about being close to the flame. The problem is, no one ever knows where the flame is. That was The Things I Never Learned in School, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Dobolowski, and you're listening to The Dobolowski Files. Stephen, how can people find more of your work on the internet this week? I think uh, the best place to go to is TobolowskiFiles.com. If you go there, you'll be able to find uh, Facebook, Twitter, my email address, and you can write me with your stories. And also, you can go to that StephenTobolowski.com. Go to stephentobolowski.com to get his newest Kindle single, which you can read on any electronic device these days. And uh, I think you'll find it's a worthy purchase, especially because you'll be supporting the Tobolowski files. You can find me at slashfilm.com. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski files. We'll see you guys later. Adios. Adios.